Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Nicomachean Ethics, Book 10, Aristotle tells us a bit more about what he's been covering through the rest of the work, that is the life of virtuous activity, or what we often call the active life, the life oriented around virtue. And as opposed to the rest of the work, where he's been saying that this is the primary way that human beings attain happiness, he actually tells us that the life of virtuous activity is the second best life. It is not the best life when it comes to attaining happiness. There is a higher life, that is the life of the contemplative, the theoretical life, the life of the philosopher, which is primarily engaging our intellect and which develops our intellectual virtues. That's not a life that, that most people are indeed living, although it is perhaps a possibility for our own time in a way that it was not for Aristotle due to technology. Why is the life of virtuous activity, which is a great life, by the way, for Aristotle. Don't get me wrong, he's not saying that there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. As a matter of fact, second best is pretty, pretty good. Why is it second best, though? He gives us a number of considerations, some of which you may find more compelling than others, and we should look at each of these in turn. So he says that the virtues that are concerned with action, the moral virtues, or as he's saying it there, the praktikai aritai, right, involve a kind of lack of leisure, a lack of sole, a lack of being able to do what we want with our own time, or a lack of rest. And the two modes that he talks about in relation to that, for examples, are political and military. So we might think for ourselves what else might fall under this. A life of activism devoted to a worthy cause, not to some cause that somebody picked just because they like holding up signs and yelling at people, but uh, really working for justice within the political realm could be understood as a kind of political life, not holding power, but, but doing something along those lines. I think as well that caretaking occupations probably fit in there. Education, when it's done right, could certainly be a life of active virtue. That's not to say that many educators are indeed virtuous. As a matter of fact, I think experience shows us that not to be the case, despite a lot of talk about that sort of thing, even among people doing virtue ethics. And we could go on and on, you know, what, what other professions, what other ways of living, committed ways of living might be involved with that? That's a good question to consider for yourself. What do they have in common? They aim at securing some other good. Now, Aristotle does still think that virtue is something that we ought to pursue for its own sake. It is a good in itself, but it is also a productive good. And the life of deploying virtue, as well as developing virtue, the life of actually doing things, is going to be a life that lacks leisure in part because we're aiming at something beyond just that particular activity. So in war, Aristotle says, the goal is peace. He actually thinks that if you're pursuing war for its own sake, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. 
He says this not only here, but in the politics. In the case of the political life, you're aiming at the happiness of yourself and hopefully also your fellow citizens. I'd say if you're involved in some sort of organization, there's going to be some good in the organization. And when organizations actually lose sight of what goods they're attempting to attain and they become all about profit, they lose their cohesiveness. They lose their morale, as we call it, which comes from the word moral. They cease to be, you might say, environments in which the virtues not only can be cultivated, but can be displayed, and in which that can play a role within the organization. All of that said, this is a very important point. There's a certain constrainedness by necessity to the life of virtue. So if you accept that as a flaw with it, you're going to see that as making it second best. Another issue. Activities of moral virtue are, as Aristotle says, purely human. They are not animal, right? But they're not divine either. Human beings are located within a continuum between the divine and the animal. We're somewhere in between. And what places us there is several things, two of which I have on the board, and one of which I, I should actually put up there, and I may do so. So one of them is we have bodily existence, right? We are not just disembodied souls floating around. We exist here in these bodies. These bodies have needs, requirements, they have to be maintained, you know, there's all sorts of things that go along with that. And so the activities of moral virtue are, are involving that aspect of our existence. Our passions and our desires. You know, Aristotle says the moral virtues not only have to do with actions, they have to do with our emotions, our pathe, which is another word for passion, and desire, our orexis, our what it is that drives us. The other thing is that we are social animals. Aristotle says that a human being who did not need other people would either, this is in the politics, would either be a god or a beast, but not a human being. That there's something intrinsically social to us, and the virtues are connected with that. That's not to say that you can't be social while you're engaged in the life of contemplation, but it's less so. Another point to this is that the life of virtuous activity involves less self-sufficiency than the life of contemplation. Why? Well, it requires a greater amount of external goods. We need more things in order to be able to, say, be generous, or even to be able to be courageous or temperate. We probably need some of the goods in part as we're developing towards virtue, as the same reason why we need scratch paper when we're writing you know, a novel or planning out a video or something like that. We make mistakes that consume goods, and so you know we require a certain amount of external wealth or goods. We also require friends, as Aristotle has noted, in addition to that, and that's something, that's why the life of virtuous activity just by itself, just being virtuous, is not actually going to make you happy. It's virtuous activity, number one, with enough wealth added so that you can exercise the virtues. The last thing that he says is particularly interesting. It takes us into a theological dimension. Aristotle does not have a particularly articulated, well-developed doctrine about religion or the gods, but here is what he says at this point. So this is sort of a rejection of the rather anthropomorphic notion of the gods that you would find, say, in Homer, where the gods are fighting on the sides of the Greeks and the Trojans, or are getting involved in love affairs with each other, or are sometimes getting stabbed by mortals because other gods equip them to, to stab them. Or, you know, we could go on and on and on. They're seeking revenge. Their, their children are hurt. So Aristotle says 
The gods as we conceive them enjoy supreme felicity and happiness, but what sort of actions can we attribute to them? Just actions? Well, would they actually engage in just actions? He says it, it will seem ridiculous to think of them as making contracts, restoring deposits and the like. They don't make each other loans or anything like that. What about brave actions, enduring terrors and running risks for the nobility of so doing? What's going to scare a god? Gods are the top of the food chain, ontologically speaking. Or liberal actions, generous actions, but to whom will they give. Besides, he says, it would be absurd to suppose they actually have a coinage or currency of some sort. And Aristotle's saying, look, all these human anthropomorphic conceptions, they don't really work. The gods are engaged in contemplation primarily. They're not actually engaged in, in actions of moral virtue. So when the poets are saying things about them as being morally virtuous, they're actually off base. And we may like to think that we should imitate them, but we're not imitating the reality of the God. We're imitating some sort of poetic, imaginative image that helps us do the right thing the way that we ought to. So we don't, for example, go and sleep with our neighbor's spouse the way that Ares does with Hephaestus's spouse Aphrodite. We don't engage in all sorts of terrible revenges, you know, all of these sorts of things. So again, I want to really stress that the life of virtue is not a bad life. As a matter of fact, it's better than all the other lives, except for one life and that is the life of contemplation. And here are the reasons why Aristotle gives for that. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.